give the Lord a hand this morning. All right, so hey, before I dismiss the kids to go to the children's service, each night of the week, the kids were shown a video by the, uh, the Children's Hunger Fund and were encouraged to give money uh, to an offering that would feed children around the world who don't have enough food. But this ministry not only feeds children, they share the gospel with them. And they showed several stories of families who came to Christ because of this uh, the Children's Hunger Fund. And so for 25 cents, that would provide one meal for a family in need. And so the kids uh, gave a lot of money and were very generous this week. And the girls' total was $209.60. And the boys' total was $300.76. So the boys gave the most. But the big winner was the gospel, and uh, we're thankful for that. So, what's that? And, oh, yes, thank you. And uh, we had one young lady, Maya, which is the Lakwa's niece. She trusted Christ as her Savior this week, which is the biggest part of VBS. That's great. All right. Kids, you can be dismissed. All right, Michaela is our scripture reader this morning, and so we welcome her, and uh, we, we're glad you're singing in the praise band up there. Good to see Eugene and Amy and Michaela and Addison. They're a great addition to Revolution Church. Amen? Amen. And um, you know how we read the scripture at the end, we, the reader will say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Actually, it's meant to be a responsive thing. So the reader will say, this is the word of the Lord, and then the audience will say, Thanks be to God. So we're going to start that this morning. You, good? you up for that? All right, here we go. Michaela, read God's word for us this morning. Genesis 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison. Each his own dream, and each dream which it, with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. He said, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this, please. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and he here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. 
and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We believe it is true, and we are here to hear from you this morning. So give me wisdom as I present your word and teach it. Give us open hearts and open minds for the glory of Christ. Amen. In 1861, Robert Louis Stevenson had a really bad dream one night that resulted in him in the next few days writing a very famous book. Anybody remember or know the title of the book? Close. We're in the right time period. It was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And so that book came from a dream in fact, Robert Louis Stevenson was a Christian, and he said this about the book. In each of us, two natures are at war, the good and the evil. Anybody relate to that besides me? <laughs> you know, Paul even said, the good that I would, I don't do, and that what I say I'm not going to do, I end up doing. And so there is the spirit in the flesh doing battle all the time, and that's what the book that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is actually all about. So his dream resulted in a book, but Joseph's dream, the interpretation of the dreams, is going to result in changing of the world, not only at that time, but for centuries to come. So we're going to divide up this chapter into five pieces. There's the two officers' dreams, and there's the interpretation for the cupbearer. There's the plea to remember. There's the interpretation for the baker, and then there's the fulfillment of the two dreams. So let's jump into it. If you're ready to hear God's word this morning, say amen. And then, okay, so we've got two guys who are officers, okay? And so when it says right here, it says, after some, sometime after this, sometime after what? After Joseph was framed. Remember, he was in Potiphar's house. He's a slave, was bought by Potiphar, but he works his way up to be the chief uh, director of all the affairs that are happening inside of his home, which is basically like a palace. So he now is in charge of all the other slaves. Everything has gone good, for being a slave anyway, but Potiphar's wife kind of had her eyes on him, and she was acting all kind of sus, and so she decided to, to entice him, and, and she falsely accused him of rape. And of course, Potiphar should have done what to him? Executed him. He had every right and power to execute him, but he knew something wasn't right. And so he just put him over in the prison. Now, it's not the nicest prison for sure. Psalm 105 told us that, that he had shackles on his neck and on his ankles, and it was painful. So it's not like, but even there, he works his way up. So now all of a sudden, he's put in charge of the prisoners. He's kind of like the assistant warden, if you will. And so there's two guys here. There's the cupbearer and the baker. They sound like menial jobs, but these are, the Bible in the verses later will call them officers. They're in charge of all the people being fed in the king's palace. They're in charge of everything there is to drink, especially the wine in the, in the Pharaoh's palace. Okay, So these are serious jobs because 
This is the two ways that the Pharaoh could be poisoned. A lot of times kings and other prime ministers were overthrown because somebody slipped something into the food. And their job as secret security, if you will, was to make sure the Pharaoh did not get poisoned. So these are high-ranking officials. And notice what's in the cupbearer, what's in his cup. I mean, usually he would sip the cup before the Pharaoh would. That would be part of the test. And what's in the cup? Wine, right? And what does a baker bake? Bread. And right off the bat, we see, as I'll show you here, the cupbearer and the baker. Okay? So keep that in mind as we read through this passage, because you will see it all over the place. In fact, you're failing to teach Genesis 40 if you don't point this to communion. So we've read it before, but we need to see it through those eyes. It says they've committed an offense. It didn't say they each committed an offense. It doesn't say offenses plural. Evidently, they're guilty of the same thing. And when I first was reading this passage, I thought, you know, maybe Pharaoh got like food poisoning and thought, oh man, someone tried to poison me, but I survived. And you two guys are in charge of whatever goes in my mouth. So I'm putting both of you in prison. And one of them end up being guilty and one of them end up being not guilty is what I was thinking because at the end of the story, which as McKelly just read, one is going to live and one's not going to live. But here it doesn't say they were both accused of an offense. It says they both committed the same offense. And for some reason, God shows, chooses through Pharaoh to show mercy to one and then execute the other. And, and I think you'll just stay with me on this. I think you'll see why at the end that I believe that's right. Again, I cannot be 100% certain, certain. But they weren't accused. It says, the Bible says they committed this offense. And it's one offense. So they were collaborating or something similar to that. So Pharaoh, which is not his name, it's his title, okay, he was very angry. In fact, what's interesting is archaeology backs up this story. They saw seven years of prosperity and seven years of famine in the Egyptian records. So this Pharaoh recorded these things. And what's interesting is the Hebrew word literally means cracked off, like he blew his top. (laughs) He was furious when it says he was angry. And he's Furious with these two officers, as it calls them, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So these two guys in his administration, he's very angry with. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. It doesn't name the captain of the guard, but if you're paying a little bit of attention, who did we see in chapters 37, 39? Who is the captain of the guard? Potiphar is. Unless unless he's lost his job or something like that. This is only a little time later. So we have every reason to believe that, but I think it's one of those things like he slips it in there. So you're like, oh yeah, Potiphar's the one receiving this, and guess who's Potiphar's going to put him in charge of? Joseph, which is further evidence to show that I don't think he thinks Joseph is guilty of what his wife accused him of. So he puts him in, he's, he's in the same prison where Joseph is, and the captain of the guard, which I believe is Potiphar, appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. So here, Joseph's in charge, but what is he doing? The word attend, what's a synonym for attend? To attend to someone's needs is to what? To serve them. So Joseph could say, hey, I'm in charge here. You give me something to eat, and you go wash my clothes. But the Bible says he served them, which is, again, Joseph is a picture of who in the New Testament? Of Christ. And Jesus said, I came to seek and to save. And he says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. 
See, here's Joseph could be, you know, throwing his weight around, but he's choosing to serve these guys. That's super important, as you'll see as the story develops. They continued for some time. The word sometime here means days in custody. So this isn't years necessarily yet. And one night they both dreamed. Now, it's interesting, when Joseph was growing up, how many dreams did he have? Two. And then here in the jail, how many guys are there? And they have, each have a dream. Two. And spoiler alert, Pharaoh's going to have how many dreams? Two. You see that pattern there. And so this cup baker, the one who's in charge of the wine, and the baker, the one's in charge of the food and the bread, <clears throat> they each have this dream, and they were confined in the prison. And each had his own dream. These are distinct dreams, and each had their own interpretation. That's important because Joseph's dreams were two different dreams, but how many interpretations? One, the moon and the stars bowing down, the stalks of hay bowing down, all pointed to Joseph will be in charge and rule over the family. Pharaoh's dreams, two dreams, but how many interpretations? One. But here, the chiasm in the middle, they each have their own. See the distinction there? There's chiasms all over this story here. And so um, it goes on to say, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So again, why does he care? These guys are prisoners. They've committed some high crime against the Pharaoh, but he is sensitive enough, compassionate enough that he's making note that these guys seem troubled. He could have just threw the food in the cell and walked away. But Joseph knows that they're human beings, and he has a kind and compassionate heart. Christians should lead the way in that, amen? Uh, I, I'm not as, being a male, I can be kind of oblivious, you know? And how many wives could say amen to your husband's kind of being oblivious and not having a clue? But sometimes I, I, I bail myself out. So last week, I was at the rec center working out, getting my swell on, and uh, I, I noticed this lady out there, and she's Japanese, and her, she has a toddler sitting next to her on the bench who's maybe 18 months old, can't be two, very little. She has her hands in her face, and she is sobbing. And it's in the hallway, and there's nobody there. And I kind of walk, and I'm like, oh, I wonder what that's about. And I'm like, the Lord's saying, you know, you got to talk to her. You can't just walk away. So I turn around, I go back, I said, excuse me, I said, I saw that you're having a hard day. I said, are you okay? And she said, yeah, I, I will be. It's just been a really bad morning. I said, well, I'm, I'm going to pray for you. And I pulled out my phone. I had a card. I said, I'm a pastor. I said, if I can help you at all with anything, please call me anytime. She said, okay, thank you. And her, her name was Sky. If you want to pray for her, that'd be great. I'm hoping that she at least watched the QR code with the gospel on it. But we need to be that kind of people in the world because that's not uh, very common. We live in a world that all our eyes are on ourself. It's all about me, myself, and I. And we really don't take time to, to care for others. But Joseph did. Even though these guys were two accused criminals, and again, I believe they committed the crime based on what the word said. They committed this offense. And, uh, and yet Joseph cared about them. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the cussy in his master's house, why are your faces downcast? They didn't say anything. They weren't even necessarily crying. They're just their expression was downcast, which means Joseph's making eye contact. He's not just going about so busy with his job. I want you to watch carefully the verbs that just went through quickly in that passage. He attended to them. He, he was serving them, right? 
And then he saw, he's making eye contact, he's vis visually involved, and then um, he asked. You see the prog progression there? When you serve others, it opens up doors to see what's going on in their lives. And when you see what's going on in their lives, it gives you permission to ask. A lot of times when people want to give you advice, it's like, well, who are you to give me advice? But when you've taken time to invest in their lives, you've served them, you've been personal with them, then it gives you permission to ask them what's going on in their life. We as Christians definitely need to be speaking to the lost about Jesus. We definitely need to do that. And I, I'm proud of you as a church that you're verbal with your faith. But we could also do a better job listening to the lost like Jesus. Hearing people's stories. One story I'm super impressed with was uh, there was a pastor's conference up in New York and the, uh, the, the gay uh, community decided to protest this group of evangelical pastors and they're outside with signs saying, you know, hate speech and bigots and homophobes and all that stuff like that, protesting these pastors who are meeting. And Rick Warren decided to walk outside and he walked up to one of the protesters. He kind of came up from a different angle so they didn't know he was one of them. And he said, hey, what's going on this morning? They told him, you know, we're protesting against these pastors who preach, you know, bigot and homophobia and things like that. And he's like, really? He said, he said, so you're pretty passionate about this, right? And he's like, yeah, I'm very passionate about this. He said, well, tell me your story. And they went, they sat down on the bench, and the guy poured out his heart to him, how he'd been abused as a child and all these different things like that. And now he's chosen this lifestyle, and he doesn't need anybody pointing fingers at him and feel guilty. And he talked for almost an hour to Rick Warren, and Rick Warren did nothing but listen. And he said, wow, I'm sorry that you've gone through all that. He said, can I share with you my story? And he said, yes. And he led the guy to Christ. I don't think he would have came even close had he just started yelling at him or just telling him, you know, Jesus saves or whatever. All that's true. But because he took the time to listen and to show compassion, he was able to lead this young man to Christ. So let's move to the next part, the interpretation for the cupbearer. They said to him, we have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. What's interesting is, is there no one because where they're at, because they're in jail, and there's nobody in the cells? Maybe. It's certainly not because there's no shortage of magicians and soothsayers and palm readers in Pharaoh's occult practices, but maybe they didn't have access to them, or maybe they did have access to them, but none of them knew the dream, which is not uncommon, because later we'll see next week that Pharaoh's dreams all the magicians and soothsayers are like, we have no clue. And so, but God knew that there was someone. That's why Joseph was where he was at. And so when you get really upset about where God has you, Joseph's thinking, if I wasn't in this prison, I wouldn't be here to interpret this dream. And if I wasn't here to interpret these dreams, we know what the next step was. Um, Joseph recognized the providence of God in his life. You know, at the end of the story, the big summary statement of Genesis will be what man has intended for evil, God has used for good. And Joseph embraced that. In fact, you go back, remember chapter 38, Judah, what does he do? He gives in a temptation with his daughter-in-law who's posing as a prostitute. Then the next chapter is Joseph who does not give in to temptation. And you see how God uses both. He doesn't condone Judah's failure. He definitely promotes Joseph's success and yet, both of them end up in bad circumstances. And then you see the brothers sell their brother into slavery, but where does Joseph up, end up as? Next to the king. 
And so every time man does something, it seems to knock things down, but God exalts. And he says, Joseph says something really great. He doesn't say, hey, I know. He says, do not interpretations belong to who? To God. But then he says, but please tell me. Now, what's the connection there? God knows the answer, and me and God are tight. (laughs) We're kind of connected. So God's going to tell me what the answer to your dream is. And if you really want to dig deeper in this study, study Joseph and study Daniel, the two guys in the Bible who have this ability to interpret dreams. It's a pretty rare gift, but you see these two guys, they have it. And the parallels between Joseph and Daniel are amazing. Both of them are taken away from their homeland, one into Egypt, one into Babylon. Both of them are in foreign lands under a foreign king, but both of them take a stand for what's right and resist. Joseph resists sexual temptation. Daniel resists the king's food, right? And both of them are falsely accused. One's thrown into a pit with no water. One's thrown into a pit with lions. And then both of them say, hey, God knows the answer to your dreams. Let me tell you. And then they're exalted. It just, the, the parallels are amazing. Is God's word inspired? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we, I've been studying God's word for, for, since I was nine years old, and I just never ceased to be amazed. And I then I wonder, how can somebody say, well, the Bible is just a bunch of stories written by poor people? I'm like, these are super intelligent poor people, okay? Uh, I heard one atheist say that the Bible was written by peasants. I'm like, have you, you have, how can you even say that? To the ignorant, such an ignorant statement. Just all the chiastic structures, the parallels, the archaeological confirmation, the science confirmation, all these things point to that we truly are studying the Word of God. <clears throat> and so we uh, often were guilty of when we need answers, especially spiritual answers, we go in wrong directions. If you need some advice about plumbing, you can get on YouTube and watch how to fix this pipe, you know, and you can watch several videos. Isn't it amazing YouTube, all the stuff you can learn on how to fix something? If you want issues about electrical problems in your house, who do you listen to? Electricians. You want medical advice, who do you go to? A doctor. You know, you need legal advice, you go to a lawyer. You need some accounting done, you go to an accountant. You got spiritual problems, we go to a psychologist. What? A secular psychologist who believes in evolution, who has learned everything from Freud, Jung, and Maslow, who were all atheists who believe that you evolved from monkeys and that's why you behave that way. And so you're going to go to them instead of to spiritual people? And I don't mean just me. Uh, Eugene taught and very well this morning about how the body of Christ, we are able to counsel one another. That's the whole point of the body of Christ is to find wise counsel within the body and the body takes care of itself. If my elbow itches, my elbow doesn't go run to someone else and say, hey, would you scratch that? The body is going to take care of the body. You know, if, my, if, if anything needs taken care of, the body can take care of itself. And so it's interesting how these guys, they're wondering, knows no one to answer. And he's like, you know, you're, you got a spiritual dream. The man who made your spirit is God. That's where you need to go. And I happen to be on good terms with God, so let me talk to him. So the chief cupbearer goes first. The chief cupbearer, what's in the cup? The wine. He told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me. And on the vine there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, it blossoms, shot forth, and there's clusters, and those clusters ripen into grapes. 
Sometimes the Bible uh, tells us when something is an allegory, okay? For example, in Galatians, it talks about how Abraham's two wives, Sarah and Hagar, that was an allegory. Now, was there a literal Sarah and Hagar? Yes, there was. So it's not two fictional people like some of Jesus' parables where he just makes up two people and he just says, hey, this is a parable. By the way, whenever Jesus says it's a parable, then we know that these don't have to be a true story, okay? Um, that's why I don't believe the rich man and Lazarus, by the way, is a parable because Jesus didn't introduce it that way. And in parables, Jesus doesn't give names, and here he does give names. But that's a separate parenthetical thought. So here it says it's an allegory. These two women represent the two covenants. So when the Bible tells us something is allegorical or it's meant, it represents something, we can say that. Now there's other types in the Bible that we have to kind of put it together because Paul or Peter or James doesn't say, hey, this is an allegory. But it's kind of obvious that it is. Look at Joseph's life parallel to Jesus, right? Look at the, the, the parallels between Joseph and Daniel. They're just they're too many to be coincidence, but the Bible never says, hey, Joseph represents Jesus. But we have to figure those things out. But let me give you something here just to kind of help you, because my goal as a pastor is for you to be able to study the Bible on your own as well as me feeding you, that you're feeding yourself Monday through Saturday, and I can feed you on Sunday morning, okay? I want you to be able to study the Bible. And so here's how not to do biblical interpretation. And this is not an exaggeration. I've heard pastors who teach this way. So they say, well, the vine. Well, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Okay, so there's three branches. There's three branches of the church. There's the Orthodox, the Eastern, and the Western churches. And then they budded. That's the apostles. And then they blossoms, and that's the pastors and the elders. And then the clusters are the deacons, and the grapes are the members. Where did you get that? You know, there's nowhere in the Bible that tells you what these represent. There's nothing in the story that tells you that represents that. But I've heard pastors will just go off in a certain direction and they will spiritualize the Bible and think everything represents something. That's not always the case. This is a guy's dream. Sometimes, um, let's see. So, hold on. There we go. So, two main rules for hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. It's an art because the more you do it, the better you get at it. It's a science because it's governed by certain rules. Number one, and you've heard me say this over and over again, context is king. If you're not sure you understand a verse, read the verses around it. Read the whole chapter. Read the whole book. Who is writing it? Who is he writing to? Is it in the New Testament or the Old Testament? Is it before Pentecost or after Pentecost? And you can, there's all kinds of things that will tell you the context. And so we need to understand what the three branches are. We need to understand the context. But number two, when the plain sense makes sense, any other sense is probably nonsense. Okay, that's, that's a simple rule um, for interpreting the Bible. If, if, what, if what it says on the surface makes sense, don't try to twist it into something it's not. He says... An, and I'll get to the meaning of it here in a second. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. Watch this, all the, the eyes and the me's. In my hand, and I took the grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I placed them, I as implied, in the, in, directly into Pharaoh's hands. In his dream, he seems obsessed that there's nobody coming between him and Pharaoh because maybe that's what went wrong last time. Maybe someone else stepped in and poisoned, or maybe if he's guilty, he had someone do it. But here he's in a situation where I'm going to make sure there's no one between. I'm going to handpick the grapes. I'm going to handpress the grapes. I'm going to actually be the one to place the cup into Pharaoh's hands. Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. 
not three branches of the church, not three of this or whatever. Just go with what it says. The plain sense makes sense. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, that phrase is important, and restore you to your office. It's not just get out of jail free card, and then you get to go do something else. You'll be put back exactly where you were, which is pretty amazing if they both, both committed an offense. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just like that your dream was obsessing you with, as formerly before, and when you were his cupbearer. But here's the core of the, the story, the plea, if you will. And as you'll see, it'll be the center of the chiasm later. Only remember me. Remember me. Another way that Jesus uh, is typified in Joseph. This is the core of the story. Remember me. And he says, I want you to remember me when it's well with you. In other words, go back to your position, get settled in, make sure everything's good and Pharaoh's not going to have a temper tantrum again and throw you in jail, whatever. Make sure you don't offend him. Make sure the job's gone smoothly. Make sure you spend some time with your family and everything's cool. And after everything is good with you, please, just please, I've been, I've been a slave. I've been in prison. I haven't done anything wrong. Just please do me this kindness. Show me this mercy to mention to Pharaoh and then somehow mention it in a way that gets me out of this house, gets me out of this facility. He said, for I was indeed stolen. And this, is, this brings up another issue. You see, a lot of people that were in jail in those days were there because of a debt. There were no bankruptcy laws yet. The year of Jubilee and bankruptcy laws will come later under the law. But right now, if you're in debt and you're unable to pay, you went to jail. And you served and you produced some type of product in the jail or you worked in a farm in the jail or you made something like license plates or something in Egypt. I don't know what you did. But somehow you produced something that paid back the debt. Okay? And Joseph says, that's not me. That's not why I'm here in jail. I'm here because I was kidnapped. I was stolen. And that, that brings up another issue. I hear this all the time. And really, people are either completely ignorant or very dishonest when they say this. It's often repeated that the Bible condones slavery. And you could spend 10 minutes studying the Bible and say, wait a minute, that's not what it's talking about. But I don't think people want to have that answer. They want to have a way to accuse the Bible of something it doesn't condone. You, let's read the Bible and see if it condones slavery. Exodus 21, whoever steals, and the word steal here means kidnaps, a man sells him, and if anyone is found in possession of him, he shall be what? Put to death. Does the Bible condone kidnapping people and selling them as slaves? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Let's read another verse just in case it wasn't abundantly clear. Deuteronomy 24, if you are guilty of kidnapping Israelites and forcing them into slavery, you will be put to death. And what does it call slavery? an evil, to remove this evil from the community. Does the Bible condone slavery? Say, well, in the New Testament, didn't Paul say slaves obey your masters? What kind of slaves is he talking about? He's talking about bond slaves. People, there's two types of bond slaves. There was those who were forced to be bond slaves because they owed money. And so, okay, you're going to go work for this guy until you pay off the debt. Perfectly legal. Slaves that Paul was talking about is better translated bond servants. It's what we call indentured service. In fact, there's many young men who would grow up and say, you know what, farmer so-and-so, I want to learn how to be a farmer like you. I will work for you for two years for nothing if you will teach me the trade. And the farmer will say, okay, great. It's a deal, two years. And now 
I am an indentured servant or an indentured slave that I've agreed to work with this guy. Some of the guys working there, or girls, were there because they owed a debt. Some were there because they agreed to it. Bond servants in the New Testament could own property. They chose who their wives were. Many of them had more money than their masters. In, in Greece, many doctors chose to be bond servants. Even though they had a medical degree, they chose to indenture themselves to a physician who knew more, work for them for free, and they were called a bond slave or a bond servant. It is totally different than the Western ideal of the African slave trade. That, was a, that involved kidnapping, that was brutal, it was horrible and ugly, it was a blight on American history and the history of the whole world, okay? America was actually ahead of the curve in getting rid of it. It was preachers, primarily Baptist preachers, who were abolitionists who got rid of slavery in England and in the United States. So does the Bible condone slavery? No. And I just explained that in, what, three minutes? And that's a simple understanding. And, and you can get what I explained on the internet explained much better than I just did. But these college professors who repeat this, these atheists who repeat this, they know it's not true. They're just trying to confuse your children and your grandchildren so they will become deconstructionists and walk away from the faith. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. Isn't that funny that he said that? Is it the land of the Hebrews yet? No, it's the land of Canaan. But Joseph trusts in God that someday this is, it will be the land of Hebrews because God has promised it to us. He doesn't call it the land of the Canaanites, he calls it the land of Hebrews, which shows an immense faith. He said, here also I have done nothing that they should put me in this pit. Remember, two dreams, two dreams, two dreams. Here we have two pits. He was thrown in a pit by his brothers, and now he calls the prison he's in a pit. And a lot of times these, some of these prisons were dug down deep, and, uh, but I don't know if it's metaphorical or literal in the sense he's using it, but he's calling it a pit. So let's get to the interpretation for the baker. Not as good news. And then the chief baker, and what does the chief baker represent? The bread. When he saw the interpretation was favorable, he's like, hey, can you tell me what you told this guy? <laughs> you interpret his team. I like your interpretation of him. How about tell me mine? He said to Joseph, he said, I also had a dream. There was three cake baskets on my head, which was very common for people to carry. You see it today in Africa. When we went to Ghana, people carrying things on their head. He's got three baskets of food on top of his head. And in the uppermost basket, the one on top, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds, interesting, in the Bible, birds are almost always negative. Birds are almost always negative. Especially when you read, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that's planted in the ground. It grows into this immense tree, but then the birds of the air come and make nests in it. The kingdom of God, Christianity around the world today, there's all kinds of fakes making nests in the tree. And here the birds are another negative thing here. Um, and they were eating out of the basket on top of my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. And the guy's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The three baskets of three days. Yeah, three days, three days. That guy, you told him three days, and he gets out. Three days, cool. That's really good. I'm, I'm eager to hear the rest. And, and Pharaoh, lift up your head. Yeah, yeah. He flipped it. He's going to lift up his head too. Yeah, yeah. And he says, and he'll lift up your head from you. <laughs> he's going to take your head and go <laughs> and pop it off of you. He's going to hang you, okay? He's going to hang you on a tree. Some translations say impaled uh, because the word here is wood. It's like we say this is made out of wood. And I'm going to go take a walk in the wood. 
You know, we use them in both terms, the material and the trees all in one. And so it, it could mean that he's hanging from a tree or he's got impaled by a piece of wood. We don't know. But the birds will eat the flesh from you. So this baker's all like, yeah, yeah, oh, man. And he, now he wonders, should I believe this guy? Is he telling the truth? Dr. James Boyce, a great commentary, biblical commentarian, says, how many there are who would willingly preach the cupbearer's sermon but are unwilling to preach the baker's sermon? See, Joseph, he probably enjoyed telling the guy, man, good news. Three days, you're right back to your old job. Oh, your interpretation? Well, um, I really don't want to tell you bad news. I don't want to tell you what's wrong with your life. You know, that's your business. I'll just mind my own business. No, he, he's a prophet of God who's willing to give you both sides of the coin. And Dr. James Boyce is saying, you know, when we preach God's word, are we willing to let this sword cut both ways? Are we willing to say, hey, here's the good news, but here's the bad news? You know, a lot of preaching today is just, it's all good news, it's all good news. Everybody, I'm okay, you're okay. It's a lot of good psychology, and we're all going to be fine. One famous preacher recently said, I believe that 99.9% of people out there are good people. Is that biblical? How about there's none righteous, no, not one? But you know what fills the buildings? You're all great. You're awesome. Go out there and take on the world, you know? And there needs to be a positive side, and but there needs to be, hey, here's the painful truth. Which doctor do you want to see? The doctor who says, oh, that lump on your throat, don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. Go, go take some vitamins, you're good. Or do you want the doctor to say, you know, we did an MRI there, and I got good news and bad news. The good news is it's treatable. The bad news is it's stage three. We need to get, you'll be here tomorrow morning and start chemo right away. Which doctor do you want? You know, which preacher do you want? Now, years from now, Gary may be off the scene. You need a guy who's going to give you both sides. You need a Joseph who will tell you the good interpretation of the dream and the bad interpretation of the dream, regardless of how much it costs. So we've seen the two officers' dreams. We've seen the interpretation for the cupbearer being a good prognosis. Then we see the core of the story is the plea, remember me. And then we see the bad interpretation. It brings us to our final point, the fulfillment of the two dreams. So on the third day, we've heard that before. How many times in the Bible do things happen on the third day? Jonah in the belly of the whale, how many days? Three days before he spit out Jesus in the tomb, how many days? Three days, dozens of times in the Bible. Here again, the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday. Kind of an interesting coincidence. I wonder if the plot was to kill Pharaoh before his birthday or on his birthday. Maybe a big feast and somehow we're going to poison him. It's interesting, <clears throat> there's only two times in the Bible that birthdays are mentioned. Anybody remember the other story? Herod, Herod right. And and yep, really nasty scene there. Okay, pretty sus, right? Okay. <laughs> um, really absurd. And what's interesting is both, both um, birthdays are bad. Okay, now... How many of you know people who are Jehovah's Witnesses? Okay. Because of these two stories, Jehovah's Witnesses do not celebrate birthdays. Now, is that good, in, uh, good biblical interpretation? Does the Bible say don't celebrate birthdays? Just because it gives you two examples of people who messed up birthdays, does that mean you don't do it? There's a third birthday, Jesus, and it's done right. 
It's done with worship and gifts and things like that. Here's the thing about birthdays. Don't fall prey to this. Don't do it Pharaoh's way and don't do it Herod's way. Do it the right way. In fact, let me challenge you. Maybe if one of your birthdays is coming up, why don't you give it away? Say, hey, instead of presents for me, why don't we make a donation to the Children's Hunger Fund? Or why don't we make a donation to this missionary and give your birthday away? Whatever you would have spent on gifts and dinner and decorations, just say, hey, this year we're going to donate our birthday. But you can still acknowledge and celebrate your birthday. It shouldn't be all about you. In fact, it should be other people celebrating you, not you celebrating yourself. But anyway, again, Jehovah's Witnesses aren't the best at interpreting the Bible all around. It says that he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head. And there's that phrase there. Lift up the head is a metaphor for to bring someone from a low estate, to bring them up to a point, and to do an accounting. This phrase is used in the Greek and the New Testament several times where Jesus said a certain manager called people into account, and it means lifted their head. It's like, hey, stand before me and let's give an account. Now, an accounting can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. If it's okay, we're adding things up. Wow, look at you. You multiplied it five times. Great. Here's five times more. Go out and make some more money. Wait a minute. You took the one coin I gave you and you buried it in the ground? You didn't multiply it in anything? You need to go. You're fired. You're in trouble. So lifting the head could turn out to be a positive thing or a negative thing depending on what the accounting was. So he brings both these guys up and he does it in front of all the other servants. So this is before the big birthday bash and all the servants are in the palace. These two guys get brought in, probably in chains. We don't know, but they're prisoners. They're brought in and it could be even as literal as they're bowing their head before Pharaoh and he goes out and actually lifts up their head. But again, the metaphor is, you're going to give an account to me. And he does this in front of all the servants. And Jesus talks about that in many of the parables. And it says, and he restored the cupbearer to his position. He lifts up the head of the cupbearer and says, hey, and I don't know what happened. Did he forgive him? Because again, the chapter starts off, they both committed an offense. It doesn't say they were just accused. It says they did it. Anyway, but he says, you know what? Go back to being my cupbearer. You're, got, you're being brought back just in time for the big birthday bash. And he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. So he's actually tastes the wine, gives it to the, the Pharaoh. He does his job. But he hanged the chief baker. And a lot of times, hangings were almost always public as a, a um, demonstration. Others don't mess with Pharaoh, just like Joseph had interpreted it. Now, what does Deuteronomy say that if someone makes a, a prophecy and it doesn't come true? says they're a false prophet. Joseph tr- proves that he's a prophet of God because his prophecies always come true. And it was just like he said. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. You had one job, <laughs> remember me. And it says he did not remember him. Now, is this like some crazy PTSD amnesia? Like, oh, oh, wow, Joseph, I totally forgot. I, I don't think that's what it means here. It says he, he did not remember but he forgot him. And this is not because Moses graduated from the redundancy school of redundancy. He's not repeating it twice. These are two different words, and this is probably a a better way of reading it. He did not consider Joseph, but he disregarded him. You know there's things you you need, you need to do, you know you need to do, do, but you keep thinking, ah, not not now. And you keep pushing away, and you're, you're not remembering or considering, I need to do this. You're just disregarding it. That's what's here. I don't think this is a case of amnesia. 
Now, I mentioned that there's a chiastic structure, and I actually have one that's big enough for you to read, okay? <laughs> so, the story begins with Pharaoh putting the officers in prison, and they dream dreams. The story ends with Pharaoh bringing them out of prison, and their dreams fulfilled. See the sandwich forming here. And then, you have the cupbearer's dream, and then you have the baker's dream. And then, and what's at the very heart of the sandwich? What's the meat of the sandwich? Remember me. Remember me. And so, that tells us what the main point of this chapter is, that Joseph, once again, is being like Jesus. He's saying, remember me. We'll talk about that in just a little bit more. Joseph's simple plea isn't, hey, you guys owe me. Remember me. He's like, hey, would you just show me this kindness? Okay, They did owe him, but he's not playing that card. It's interesting also, when he told the story, I was indeed stolen and I was put here falsely, he never mentions Potiphar. Potiphar's wife his, or his brothers or the Midianite slave traders or any of the slave traders. He doesn't throw anybody under the bus. He just says, hey, here's what happened to me and I didn't do anything wrong. It's interesting how gracious he was. But his main point is, remember me, and this reminds us of what Christ did. Think about this. Hours before he's about to die, he has a meal with his disciples. And Luke says, and he loved them to the end. Joseph was going through a really hard time. He could say, hey, guys, I don't have time to interpret your dreams. I'm really in a bad situation right here. And Jesus could have said, hey, guys, I'm about to get murdered here. I'm about to go through the most excruciating pain any person's ever felt, not to mention the rejection of my father. But he has time to take a meal. And when he gets to the heart of the Passover, he holds it up and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. This is the cup. And he's thinking about this cup that he just prayed about to the Father, if there's any way to remove this cup. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This do, this is my blood in the new covenant. This do in remembrance of me. Paul spells it out. He says, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you, this do in remembrance of me. He said the same thing, this cup in my blood, do this in remembrance of me. He is the greater Joseph. This is the one that Joseph's life was pointing to. This is the one who the whole Bible points to. Who sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver? Judah. Who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? Judas. In Hebrew, it's the same name. Yehuda. One's the Hebrew version, one's the Greek version, but the proper pronunciation for both is Yehuda. Both were sold by Yehuda. Was that a coincidence? No, there's no coincidences. In prison, Joseph was with two uh, criminals, right? Who else was with two criminals? Jesus. With Joseph, one went on to live. The other was executed. With Jesus... One went on to live forever, and the other spent eternity in hell. Luke tells us about it. He says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other, who had been doing this, according to Matthew, but now has a change of heart, he rebuked him, talking to the guy on the other side, saying, hey, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed, we're in this situation justly. For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. 
Some translations call them thieves. They were much more than thieves. They were criminals. They were insurrectionists. There was, there was murder going along with all the trying to steal the power from the Roman government. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me. Ironic. Joseph says, remember me. Jesus says at the Last Supper, remember me. Now he has a thief saying to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's so much we can learn from this criminal. First of all, he fears God. That's what he implied. Like, hey, you don't fear God? (laughs) I fear God. I've learned a lot here watching this guy on this cross as he's dying saying, Mary, take care of your son, John. John, take care of Mary. Father, forgive these Roman soldiers for they know not what they do. This is amazing. I fear God now. You should too. He knew he was guilty and he deserved punishment. He said, we're, we're in this situation justly. He knew Jesus was righteous. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he knew that there was nothing he could do to be saved. Here he's nailed to a cross. What's he going to do? He's, the only one he can turn to is to Christ. He realized it's never too late to repent. You may be here this morning and your life has not been a good life. You may be watching online thinking, man, there's no way Christ would ever accept me. I have decades of just selfishness and evil. What about this guy on the cross? Let me tell you something. It's never too late to repent. You mean someone on their deathbed who's been an evil person their whole life can say, Lord Jesus, I repent. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I believe you died for me that you were buried and you rose again for me, and I accept you as my Lord and Savior, and then die, and then go to heaven? Yes. And if that bugs you, it, it shouldn't, because you look, cause the problem is we look at that person and say, yeah, but they don't deserve it, and I do. <laughs> no, you don't. You do not. You may not be as bad as them, but you're this far from them. And all of us are like way over there compared to Jesus. A lot of people have a hard time with deathbed confessions. So first of all, number one, are they real? Well, that's between them and God. If they're not real, then of course it doesn't matter. But Jesus told a parable about this. He said a farmer had a field that needed to be harvested, but he was short of laborers. So he went out into the workforce and found day laborers and at six in the morning and said, hey, go work out for me and I'll pay you one day's wage. The King James calls it a penny, but it means a denarius, one day's wage. It was a fair wage. He get, delivers them there, Sees, man, I still don't have enough. Goes back to the day laborer's place and at 9 a.m. and says, hey, I need more guys. Go out there. I'll pay you a day's wage. He goes out at noon, at 3. He goes out at 6 when there's only an hour of daylight left and says, hey, guys, you work for me for one hour. I'll pay you a day's wage. And then it came time to pay. And he, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. He just calls the last guys in, gives them a day's wage. The guys who started at 6 in the morning like, whoa. Look how much you gave them for an hour, a denarius an hour. Let's, man, we're going to bang today. But then he proceeds to pay everybody one denarius. And they're like, hey, what, what's up? They only worked an hour, we worked all day. And he said, wait, 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 wait. Didn't we have an agreement? Was it not a legally binding contract? Don't complain to me. Those people represent the people who've been good all their life, I mean, Christians all their life, and they go to heaven. And then they point their fingers at someone who got saved on their deathbed and say, hey, that's not fair. We're all getting heaven, bro. <laughs> what are we complaining about? We all got eternity in paradise. You know, are you going to have more gold in your mansion than mine? That, that, that's not a matter. We're all going to be with Jesus. And that's the scandal of the grace of God, that anybody at any time, anywhere, under any circumstances can be saved. 
if they truly repent. Again, there's something about human nature and our pride that rubs us the wrong way. But he looked at Jesus as his only hope. He was trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection. Well, Gary, how do you know that? He said, today, he said, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He's saying to a dying guy, you're going to be king someday. How do you know that unless you know, believe in the resurrection? And then he recognized Jesus as king. When I enter into your kingdom. So he not only looked at him as his savior, remember me into your kingdom. I accept you as the king of my life. It wasn't easy believism. Pray this prayer. Good, I got a ticket to heaven. Now I'm going to live however I want. No. You take the ticket to heaven. He, you, you are saying, I am king. You, I, you are the king of my life. I am part of your kingdom. That's what the kids learned about this week in VBS. God showed his amazing love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the Bible says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is king, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Would you pray with me? Father, this, uh, this story screams Jesus all over it. Father, forgive us for when we read the Bible and we don't see him. Father, we thank you for the beautiful life of Joseph who submitted to the sovereignty of God so that he could display the glorious grace of Jesus Christ by the way he lived. May we do the same thing. May we live a life that our life tells the story of Jesus. Father, we thank you for this time of communion that we're about to enter into. And Father, I pray if there's one here today that doesn't know Christ as Savior, they would make him the king of their life and they would accept what you did on the cross as total forgiveness for their sins and they would remember you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to know more about how to become a Christian or you want to let me know that you became a Christian today, please text me or call me. All right, we're going to do a quick question and answer session. So if you haven't texted in the question already, you can do so now. All right, are there people in current times who God uses to interpret dreams? How would you know if it really is an interpretation from God? That's a great question, and I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> I'm going to plead the fifth and say, I do not know. Um, let me just say that like other miracles and spiritual gifts, it's very rare. Otherwise, they wouldn't be miracles if they were everyday things. I think we can go to one of two extremes. I know people, when we came, where we came from, we used to live in Lake Jackson, and there was a whole group that met every Tuesday night to talk about their dreams and interpret their dreams. And they were more obsessed with the interpretation of dreams than they were the interpretation of the Bible. They knew very little Bible, but they knew their dreams in detail. So that's an unhealthy way. I think I might be guilty of going to the other extreme and saying, no, there's not, period. All, I will allow that God can do what he wants to do. I think it's going to be rare and exceptional. I think it better match the word of God. I think your first filter to pipe, funnel your dr dream through is the word of God, okay? Because it could be you just ate too much pepperoni before you went to bed. Because <laughs> there's a lot of dreams we have that make no sense and have no spiritual meaning it's just the brain synapses firing while we're asleep, and we, we've all brain, dream all kinds of crazy dreams. Can they have some interpretation? Yes. But again, if the interpretation of the dream doesn't match God's word, throw the dream in the trash can with the box of pizza. All right, what else? Let's see what other questions we have here. What was the meaning behind Judas, Judas's name? Oh, man, I said that when I preached on Judah in chapter 38.
Okay, good. So it means praise the Lord. Yeah. Right, because in other words, God's enough. I'm not looking. The first few were like, well, maybe my husband will listen to me. Maybe my husband will see me. That's what the names meant. But this one's like, all I need is God. Forget babies and husbands. I got enough from Jesus. What's really interesting is in the chosen, you're seeing the guy who plays Judas, and Jesus says to him, "So, Judas, what does your name mean?" And he goes, "Praise the Lord." And he goes, will you do that with your life? And he says, yes, all the days of my life. He says, okay, then follow me. It's a really powerful scene. By the way, since I brought The Chosen, you may have read some things about it saying that they've gone woke. It's not true. The Chosen's a big multi-million dollar operation. And what happened is they hired some contractors to build some stages. And one of the contractors that they hired, they don't hire all Christians. They hire anybody. Like, it'd be like the guy who mows our lawn sometimes we hire somebody once every five weeks to mow when we don't have a team to mow. I don't know if he's a Christian or not. We hire people to paint. We hire people to do things. The guy who installed the cable back here for our, our internet, I don't know if he was a Christian or not. But let's just say if one of them pulls up and he's got a gay pride bumper sticker on his car and he pulls up in our parking lot and we drive by and say, oh, look at Revolution Church. They've gone woke. One of the contractors had a, a very small, this big, a rainbow flag on a piece of a machinery when he was building a stage. And they said, oh, look at the Chosen has gone woke. That's not true. I'm not saying the Chosen is perfect. I'm saying it's still extremely uh, worthwhile in watching. If you haven't watched, I recommend that you do. All right, let me see if there's any other questions. There is not. Okay, so let me ask you to stand. And we will read a blessing upon one another from God's Word. Ephesians chapter 3. <laughs> I see you, Nathan. <laughs> That's the joke. Every Sunday, somebody stands in front of the screen. All right, read with me on verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to his glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.